This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we invite a writer to choose a story from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, we're going to hear Corey by Alice Munro, which was published in The New Yorker in October of 2010. Corey was right across the table, looking their guest in the eye. She seemed to think this was funny. Who's she going to marry, her father continued. She's 25. Corey raised her eyebrows, made a face. You missed a year, she said. 26. The story was chosen by Margaret Atwood, who is the author of 18 novels, including The Testaments, a sequel to her 1985 book, The Handmaid's Tale, which will be published in September. Hi, Margaret. Hello, Deborah. <laughs> Thank you for coming back. Now, the, the last time that you were on the podcast, you read a story by uh, another fellow Canadian, Mavis Gallant. And the answer may seem obvious, but why did you choose to talk about Alice Munro this time? Well, she's an old pal. I know her work quite well. How did you two meet? Did you know her work before you met her? I knew her work before I met her. I met her right after her first book was published. In the 60s? Yeah, Dance of the Happy Shades. It was published right at the end of the 60s, I think. I was very taken with it. I hadn't been reading her in The New Yorker because she wasn't yet published in The New Yorker. Right. She had published in various other magazines here and there, but not ones that I had come across. And uh, then we were going out to the West Coast, and as Canadian writers did in those days, you, you just contacted one another and said things like, really like your work and blah, blah. And I ended up um, sleeping on her floor in Victoria. <laughs> so, so it was friendship at first sight. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. I think I had published one novel at that time. Did you feel as though the, the two of you were working in similar zones or, or quite differently? No, quite quite different because there's quite a lot of age difference. Mm -hmm. So she was born in 1931, and I was born in 1939. Mm -hmm. So that means that she was a Depression child and I was a war child. Right, right. And you were also writing poetry at the time? I was also writing poetry at the time, and I had published my first book, which was called The Circle Game, and which won the the Canadian Prize. There really was, and it was one at that time, uh, much to everybody's uh, surprise, <laughs> mine included. And what did you feel when you read that first book, um, Dance of the Happy Shades? Well, I, I was pretty young at the time. I was 29 or so. And uh, so my experience of centuries of short story writing was not vast, but I've always read for pleasure, and a couple of those stories knocked me out, including the, the title one, which is so amazing and cleverly put together once you come to examine it. So people think of Alice as being the sort of spontaneous writer, and that's all from real life, et cetera, et cetera. But actually, she's quite a composing writer. I did a long piece on her, her only novel, which is called Lives of Girls and Women. And my aim was to show that it was, in fact, a novel. <laughs> people, people tend to think of it as a collection of stories, but in fact, it's a novel, and it's very carefully composed. Yeah, I found that editing, Alice, that often I will 
come across a, a detail or, or something that seems like an aside, it seems sort of extraneous, and and I'll think, well, we should just take that out. And then 20 pages later, I go back and say, no, put it back in. Yeah, put it back <laughs> it, in. because It was there it, for it, a reason. Yeah, it prefigures something. So so the way she, the way she starts the story uh, really sets it up. Yeah, yeah. She won the, the Nobel Prize in literature in 2013, and she's now widely lauded for, for maybe not reinventing, but for expanding and developing the short story form. What do you think was her biggest contribution? She, she once said to me, oh, I know what I can do, which meant this is my range, this is my canvas, and I'm not going to try stuff outside that because this is what I can do. So I think that thing that is so often quoted of linoleum kitchen floors concealing dark caves underneath, uh, I think she's somebody who, who digs down rather than makes a really wide uh, canvas. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So she's not interested in um, grand sweeps. She's interested in Oh, let me think in, in terms of painting. So Dutch interiors. Mm-hmm. So everything is there. You can see it all. It's very clear. And and then you can extrapolate out from that what does it mean. Yeah. They're notably Canadian interiors. That They're Canadian interiors because that's what she knows. Yeah. So her, her canvas was Wingham. Um basically Wingham, Ontario, and the area around it. And then some of them are set on the West Coast. Occasionally a character might visit Toronto, but they, <laughs> they don't live there. And at one point they visit Australia, which he actually did. Uh, but again, they don't live there. Yeah. yeah. I remember her saying that she she used to go back and forth between the West Coast and, and Ontario. And almost always driving and stopping in different small towns along the way. Yeah, just to... so that, that was when they had a place in Comax. Yeah, yeah. Well, Kari, the, the story that you're reading, it, it's a relatively late story in her career. She was 79, I think, when we published it. Do you think... Totally good for her. Way to go, Alice. <laughs> <laughs> there were still quite a few after that. I'm wondering if you think it's, it's sort of characteristic of her work. Very characteristic. So the the small town, the social hierarchy, uh, things falling apart, which they do quite a lot, and 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 the deception. Yeah. So yeah. the deception, and this one has a twist. You would think that it would come out that she would discover the deception, then there would be a scene, and she would kick him out. But that isn't what happens. Well, let's not give it away. We'll talk some more after the story. And now here's Margaret Atwood reading Cory by Alice Monroe. Corey. It isn't a good thing to have the money concentrated all in the one family the way you do in a place like this, Mr. Carlton said. I mean, for a girl like my daughter Corey here, for example, I mean like her. It isn't good. Nobody on the same level. Corey was right across the table, looking their guest in the eye. She seemed to think this was funny. Who's she going to marry, her father continued. She's 25. Corey raised her eyebrows, made a face. 
You missed a year, she said. Twenty-six. Go ahead, her father said. Laugh all you like. She laughed out loud, and indeed, what else could she do, the guest thought. His name was Howard Ritchie, and he was only a few years older than she was, but already equipped with a wife and a young family, as her father had immediately found out. Her expressions changed very quickly. She had bright white teeth and short, curly, nearly black hair, high cheekbones that caught the light. Not a soft woman, not much meat on the bone, which was the sort of thing her father might find to say next. Howard Ritchie thought of her as the type of girl who spent a lot of time playing golf and tennis. In spite of her quick tongue, he expected her to have a conventional mind. He was an architect just getting started on a career. Mr. Carlton insisted on referring to him as a church architect because he was at present restoring the tower of the town's Anglican church, a tower that had been on the verge of toppling until Mr. Carlton came to its rescue. Mr. Carlton was not an Anglican. He had pointed that out several times. His church was the Methodist, and he was Methodist to the core which was why he kept no liquor in the house. But a fine church like the Anglican ought not to be let to go to rack and ruin. No hope looking to the Anglicans to do anything. They were a poor class of Irish Protestants who would have taken the tower down and put up something that was a blemish on the town. They didn't have the shekels, of course, and they wouldn't understand the need for an architect rather than a carpenter. A church architect. The dining room was hideous, at least in Howard's opinion. This was the mid-fifties, but everything looked as if it had been in place before the turn of the century. The food was barely all right. The man at the head of the table never stopped talking. You'd think the girl would be exhausted by it, but she seemed mostly to be on the verge of laughing. Before she was done with her dessert, she lit a cigarette. She offered Howard one, saying quite audibly, Don't mind Daddy. He accepted, but didn't think the better of her. Spoiled, rich miss. Unmannerly. Out of the blue, she asked him what he thought of the Saskatchewan premier, Tommy Douglas. He said that his wife supported him. Actually, his wife didn't think Douglas was far left enough, but he wasn't going to get into that. Daddy loves him. Daddy's a communist. This brought a snort from Mr. Carlton that didn't squelch her. Well, you laugh at his joke, she told her father. Shortly after that, she took Howard out to look at the grounds. The house was directly across the street from the factory, which made men's boots and work shoes. Behind the house, however, were wide lawns and the river that curled halfway around the town. There was a worn path down to its bank. She led the way, and he was able to see what he hadn't been sure of before. She was lame in one leg. Isn't it a steep climb back up, he asked. I'm not an invalid. I see you've got a rowboat, he said, meaning that as a partway apology. I'd take you out in it, but not right now. Now we've got to watch the sunset. She pointed out an old kitchen chair that she said was for watching the sunset and demanded that he sit there. She herself sat on the grass. He was about to ask if she would be able to get up all right, but thought better of it. I had polio, she said. That's all it is. My mother had it too, and she died. That's too bad. 
I suppose so. I can't remember her. I'm going to Egypt next week. I was very keen on going, but now I don't seem to care so much. Do you think it'd be fun? I have to earn a living. He was amazed at what he'd said, and, of course, it set her off giggling. I was speaking in general terms, she said grandly when the giggling finished. Me too. Some creepy fortune hunter was bound to snap her up, some Egyptian or whatever. She seemed both bold and childish. At first, a man might be intrigued by her, but then her forwardness, her self-satisfaction, if that is what it was, would become tiresome. Of course, there was money, and to some men, that never became tiresome. You mustn't ever mention my leg in front of Daddy, or he will go apoplectic, she said. Once, he fired not just a kid who teased me, but his entire family. I mean, even cousins. From Egypt, there arrived peculiar postcards sent to his firm, not his house. Well, of course, how could she have known his home address? Not a single pyramid on them. No sphinx. Instead, one showed the Rock of Gibraltar with a note that called it a pyramid in collapse. Another showed some flat, dark brown fields, God knows where, and said, Sea of Melancholia. There was another message in fine print, magnifying glass obtainable, send money. Fortunately, nobody in the office got hold of these. He did not intend to reply, but he did. Magnifying glass faulty, please refund money. He drove to her town for an unnecessary inspection of the church steeple, knowing that she had to be back from the pyramids, but not knowing whether she would be at home or off on some other jaunt. She was home, and would be for some time. Her father had suffered a stroke. There was not really much for her to do. A nurse came in every other day, and a girl named Sadie Wolfe was in charge of the fires, which were always lit when Howard arrived. Of course, she did other chores as well. Corey herself couldn't quite manage to get a good fire going or put a meal together, she couldn't type, couldn't drive a car, not even with a built-up shoe to help her. Howard took over when he came. He looked after the fires and saw to various things around the house and was even taken to visit Corey's father, if the old man was able. He hadn't been sure how he would react to the foot in bed, but in some way it seemed more appealing, more unique, than the rest of her. She had told him that she was not a virgin, but that turned out to be a complicated half-truth owing to the interference of a piano teacher when she was 15. She had gone along with what the piano teacher wanted because she felt sorry for people who wanted things so badly. Don't take that as an insult, she said, explaining that she had not continued to feel sorry for people in that way. I should hope not, he said. Then he had things to tell her about himself, the fact that he had produced a condom did not mean that he was a regular seducer. In fact, she was only the second person he had gone to bed with, the first being his wife. He had been brought up in a fiercely religious household and still believed in God to some extent. He kept that a secret from his wife, who would have made a joke of it, being very left-wing. Corey said she was glad that what they were doing, what they had just done, 
appeared not to bother him in spite of his belief. She said that she herself had never had any time for God because her father was enough to cope with. It wasn't difficult for them. Howard's job often required him to travel for a daytime inspection or to see a client. The drive from Kitchener didn't take long, and Corey was alone in the house now. Her father had died, and the girl who used to work for her had gone off to find a city job. Corey had approved of this, even giving her money for typing lessons so that she could better herself. You're too smart to mess around doing housework, she had said. Let me know how you get along. Whether Sadie Wolf spent the money on typing lessons or on something else was not known, but she did continue to do housework. This was discovered on an occasion when Howard and his wife were invited to dinner with others at the home of some rather important people in Kitchener. There was Sadie waiting on table, coming face to face with the man she had seen in Corey's house. The man she had seen with his arm around Corey when she came in to take the plates away or fix the fire. An unknown woman with him, who, the conversation soon made plain, was his wife. It was also made plain that his wife had not come recently into the picture. Her time had overlapped with Corey's. Howard did not tell Corey about the dinner right away because he hoped it would become unimportant. The host and hostess of the evening were nothing like close friends of his or of his wife, certainly not of his wife, who made fun of them on political grounds afterward. It had been a social business event, and the household wasn't likely the sort in which the maids gossiped with the mistress. Indeed, it wasn't. Sadie said that she had not gossiped about it at all. She said this in a letter. It was not her mistress whom she had a notion of speaking to, if she had to. It was his own wife. Would his wife be interested in getting this information, was the way she put it? The letter was sent to his office address, which he had been clever enough to find out. But she was also acquainted with his home address. She had been spying. She mentioned that and also referred to his wife's coat with the silver fox collar. This coat bothered his wife, and she often felt obliged to tell people that she had inherited, not bought it. That was the truth. Still, she liked to wear it on certain occasions, like that dinner party, to hold her own, it seemed, even with people whom she had no use for. I would hate to have to break the heart of such a nice lady with a big silver fox collar on her coat, Sadie had written. How would Sadie know a silver fox collar from a hole in the ground, Corey said, when he felt that he had to break the news to her. Are you sure that's what she said? I'm sure. He had burned the letter at once and felt contaminated by it. She's learned things then, Corey said. I always thought she was sly. I guess killing her is not an option. He didn't even smile, so she said very soberly, I'm just kidding. It was April, but still cold enough that you would like to have a fire lit. She had planned to ask him to do it all through supper, but his strange, somber attitude had prevented her. He told her that his wife hadn't wanted to go to that dinner. It's all just pure rotten luck. You should have taken her advice, he said. 
It's the worst, he said. It's the worst that could happen. They were both staring into the black grate. He had touched her only once to say hello. Well, no, Corey said, not the worst, no. No? No, she said, we could give her the money. It's not a lot, really. I don't have, not you, I could. Oh, no, yes. She made herself speak lightly, but she had gone deathly cold. For what if he said no? No, I can't let you. No, it's a sign. It's a sign that we have to stop. She was sure that there'd been something like that in his voice and in his face. All that old sin stuff. Evil. It's nothing to me, she said, and even if you could get hold of it easily, you, you couldn't do it. You'd feel you were taking it away from your family. How could you? Family. She should never have said that. Never have said that word. But his face actually cleared. He said, no, no, but there was doubt in his voice. And then she knew that it would be all right. After a while, he was able to speak practically, and he remembered another thing from the letter. It had to be in bills, he said. She had no use for checks. He spoke without looking up as if about a business deal. Bills were best for Corey, too. They would not implicate her. Fine, she said. It's not an outrageous sum anyway. But she is not to know that we see it that way. A postal box was to be taken in Sadie's name. The bills in an envelope addressed to her left there twice a year. The dates to be set by her, never a day late. Or, as she had said, she might start to worry. He still did not touch Corey except for a grateful, almost formal goodbye. This subject must be altogether separate from what is between us, was what he seemed to be saying. We'll start fresh. We will be able again to feel that we're not hurting anybody, not doing any wrong. That was how he would put it in his unspoken language. In her own language, she made one half-joke that did not go over. Already we've contributed to Sadie's education, she wasn't this smart before. We don't want her getting any smarter, asking for more. We'll cross that bridge when we come to it. Anyway, we can threaten to go to the police, even now. But that would be the end of you and me, he said. He had already said goodbye and turned his head away. They were on the windy porch. He said, I could not stand for there to be an end of you and me. I'm glad to hear that, Corey said. The time came quickly when they did not even speak of it. She handed over the bills, already in their envelope. At first he made a small grunt of disgust, but later that turned into a sigh of acquiescence, as if he had been reminded of a chore. How the time goes around, doesn't it just... Sadie's ill-gotten gains, Corey might say, and though he didn't care for the expression at first, he got used to saying it himself. In the beginning, she would ask if he'd ever seen Sadie again, if there had been any further dinner parties. They weren't that kind of friends, he reminded her. He hardly ever saw them, didn't know if Sadie was still working for them or not. Corey hadn't seen her either. Her people lived out in the country and if Sadie came to see them, they weren't likely to show up in this town, which had rapidly gone downhill. 
There was nothing now on the main street but a convenience store where people went to buy lotto tickets and whatever groceries they had run out of, and a furniture store where the same tables and sofas sat forever in the windows and the doors seemed never to be opened, and maybe wouldn't be until the owner died in Florida. After Corey's father died, the shoe factory had been taken over by a large firm that had promised, so she believed, to keep it running. Within a year, however, the building was empty. Such equipment as was wanted moved to another town. Nothing left except a few outmoded tools that had once had to do with making boots and shoes. Corey got it into her head to establish a quaint little museum to display these things. She herself would set it up and give tours describing how things used to be done. It was surprising how knowledgeable she became, helped by some photographs that her father had taken to illustrate a talk that perhaps he himself had given, it was badly typed, to the Women's Institute when they were studying local industries. Already by the end of the summer, Corey had shown a few visitors around. She was sure that things would pick up the next year, after she had put a sign up on the highway and written a piece for a tourist brochure. In the early spring, she looked out of her window one morning and saw some strangers starting to tear the building down. It turned out that the contract she'd thought she had to use the building so long as a certain amount of the rent was paid did not allow her to display or appropriate any objects found within the building, no matter how long they had been considered worthless. There was no question of these ancient bits of hardware belonging to her, and in fact, she was fortunate not to be hauled up in court now that the company, which had once seemed so obliging, had found out what she was up to. If Howard had not taken his family to Europe the previous summer when she embarked on this project, he could have looked at the agreement for her and she would have been saved a lot of trouble. Never mind, she said when she had calmed down, and soon she found a new interest. It began with her deciding that she was sick of her big and empty house. She wanted to get out, and she set her sights on the public library down the street. It was a handsome, manageable red brick building, and being a Carnegie library, it was not easy to get rid of, even though few people used it anymore, not nearly enough to justify a librarian's wages. Corey went down there twice a week and unlocked the doors and sat behind the librarian's desk. She dusted the shelves if she felt like it and phoned up the people who were shown by the records to have had books out for years. Sometimes the people she reached claimed that they had never heard of the book. It had been checked out by some aunt or grandmother who used to read and was now dead. She spoke then of library property and sometimes the book actually showed up in the return spin. The only thing not agreeable about sitting in the library was the noise. It was made by Jimmy Cousins, who cut the grass around the library building, starting again practically as soon as he'd finished, because he had nothing else to do. So she hired him to do the lawns at her house, something she'd been doing herself for the exercise, but her figure didn't really need it, and it took forever with her lameness. Howard was somewhat dismayed by the change in her life. He came more seldom now, but was able to stay longer. He was living in Toronto, though working for the same firm. His children were teenagers or else in college, 
The girls were doing very well, the boys not quite so well as he might have wished, but that was the way of boys. His wife was working full-time, and sometimes more than full-time, in the office of a provincial politician. Her pay was next to nothing, but she was happy, happier than he'd ever known her. The past spring, he had taken her to Spain as a birthday surprise. Corey hadn't heard from him for some time then. It would have been lacking in taste for him to write to her from the birthday present holiday. He would never do a thing like that, and she would not have liked him to do it either. You'd think my place were a shrine the way you carry on, Corey said after he got back, and he said, exactly right. He loved everything about the big rooms now with their ornate ceilings and dark, gloomy paneling. There was a grand absurdity to them. But he was able to see that it was different for her, that she needed to get out once in a while. They began to take little trips, then somewhat longer trips, staying overnight in motels, though never more than one night, and eating at moderately fancy restaurants. They never ran into anyone they knew. Once upon a time, they would have done so. They were sure of it. Now things were different, though they didn't know why. Was it because they weren't in such danger, even if it did happen? The fact being that the people they might have met, and never did, would not have suspected them of being the sinful pair they still were. He could have introduced her as a cousin without making any impression, a lame relation he had thought to drop in on. He did have relatives whom his wife never wanted to bother with. And who would have gone after a middle-aged mistress with a dragging foot? Nobody would have stored that information up to spill at a dangerous moment. We met Howard up at Bruce Beach with his sister, was it? He was looking good. His cousin, maybe. A limp? It wouldn't have seemed worth the trouble. They still made love, of course sometimes with caution, avoiding a sore shoulder, a touchy knee. They had always been conventional in that way and remained so, congratulating themselves on not needing any fancy stimulation. That was for married people. Sometimes Corey would fill up with tears, hiding her face against him. It's just that we're so lucky, she said. She never asked him whether he was happy, but he indicated in a roundabout way that he was. He said that he had developed more conservative, or maybe just less hopeful, ideas in his work. She kept to herself the thought that he had always been rather conservative. He was taking piano lessons, to the surprise of his wife and family. It was good to have that kind of interest of your own in a marriage. I'm sure, Corey said. I didn't mean... I know. One day, it was in September, Jimmy Cousins came into the library to tell her that he wouldn't be able to cut her grass that day. He had to go to the cemetery and dig a grave. It was for someone who used to live around here, he said. Corey, with her finger in the great Gatsby, asked for the person's name. She said that it was interesting how many people showed up here, or their bodies did with this last request and bother for their relatives. They might have lived their entire lives in cities nearby or distant and seemed quite satisfied in those places, but had no wish to stay there when they were dead. Old people got such ideas. Jimmy said that it wasn't such an old person. The name was Wolf. The first name slipped his mind. 
Not Sadie. Not Sadie Wolf. He believed it was. And her name proved to be right there in the library edition of the local paper, which Corey never read. Sadie had died in Kitchener at the age of 46. She was to be buried from the Church of the Lord's Anointed, the ceremony at two o'clock. Well, this was one of the two days a week that the library was supposed to be open. Corey couldn't go. The Church of the Lord's Anointed was a new one in town. Nothing flourished here but what her father had called freak religions. She could see the building from one of the library windows. She was at the window before two o'clock, watching a respectably-sized group of people go in. Hats didn't seem to be required nowadays on women or men. How would she tell him? A letter to the office, it would have to be. She could phone there, but then his response would have to be so guarded, so matter-of-fact, that half the wonder of their release would be lost. She went back to Gatsby, but she was just reading words, not taking in the meaning. She was too restless. She locked the library and walked around town. People were always saying that this town was like a funeral, but in fact, when there was a real funeral, it put on its best show of liveliness. She was reminded of that when she saw from a block away the funeral goers coming out of the church doors, stopping to chat and ease themselves out of solemnity. And then, to her surprise, many of them went around the church to a side door where they re-entered. Of course, she had forgotten. After the ceremony, after the closed coffin had been put in its place in the hearse, everybody except those close enough to follow the dead and see her put into the ground would head for the -the after-the-service refreshments. These would be waiting in another part of the church, where there was a Sunday school room and a hospitable kitchen. She didn't see any reason that she shouldn't join them. But at the last moment, she would have walked past. Too late, a woman called to her in a challenging, or at least confidently unfunereal, voice from the door where the other people had gone in. This woman said to her, close up, We missed you at the service. Corey had no notion who the woman was. She said that she was sorry not to have attended, but she'd had to keep the library open. Well, of course, the woman said, but had already turned to consult with somebody carrying a pie. Is there room in the fridge for this? I don't know, honey, you'll just have to look and see. Corey had thought from the greeting person's flowered dress that the women inside would all be wearing something similar. Sunday best, if not morning best, but maybe her ideas of Sunday best were out of date. Some of the women here were just wearing slacks, as she herself was. Another woman brought her a slice of spice cake on a plastic plate. You must be hungry, she said. Everybody else is. A woman who used to be Corey's hairdresser said, I told everybody you would probably drop in. I told them you couldn't till you'd closed up the library. I said it was too bad you had to miss the service. I said so. It was a lovely service, another woman said. You'll want tea once you've done with that cake. And so on. She couldn't think of anybody's name. The United Church and the Presbyterian Church were just hanging on. The Anglican Church had closed ages ago. Was this where everybody had gone? 
There was only one other woman at the reception who was getting as much attention as Corey and who was dressed as Corey would have expected a funeral-going woman to be, a lovely lilac-gray dress and a subdued gray summer hat. The woman was being brought over to meet her, a string of modest, genuine pearls around her neck. Oh, yes, she spoke in a soft voice, as pleased as the occasion would allow. You must be Corey, the Corey I've heard so much about, though we never met. I felt I knew you, but you must be wondering who I am, she said a name that meant nothing to Corey, then shook her head and gave a small, regretful laugh. Sadie worked for us ever since she came to Kitchener, she said. The children adored her. Then the grandchildren, they truly adored her. My goodness, on her day off, I was just the most unsatisfactory substitute for Sadie. We all adored her, actually. She said this in a way that was bemused, yet delighted. The way women like that could be, showing such charming self-disparagement. She would have spotted Corey as the only person in the room who could speak her language and not take her words at face value. Corey said, I didn't know she was sick. She went that fast, the woman with the teapot said, offering more to the lady with the pearls than being refused. It takes them her age faster than it does the real old ones, the tea lady said. How long was she in the hospital? She asked in a slightly menacing way of the pearls. I'm trying to think. Ten days? Shorter time than that, what I heard and shorter still when they got around to letting her people know at home. She kept it all very much to herself, this from the employer who spoke quietly but held her ground. She was absolutely not a person to make a fuss. No, she wasn't, Corey said. At that moment, a stout, smiling young woman came up and introduced herself as the minister. We're speaking of Sadie, she asked. She shook her head in wonder. Sadie was blessed. Sadie was a rare person. All agreed, Corey included. I suspect, Milady the minister, Corey wrote to Howard in the long letter she was composing in her head on the way home. Later in the evening, she sat down and started that letter. Though she would not be able to send it yet, Howard was spending a couple of weeks at the Muskoka cottage with his family. Everybody slightly disgruntled, as he had described it in advance, his wife without her politics, him without his piano, but unwilling to forego the ritual. Of course, it's absurd to think that Sadie's ill-gotten gains would build a church, he wrote, but I'd bet she built the steeple. It's a silly-looking steeple, anyway. I never thought before what a giveaway those upside-down ice-cream cone steeples are. The loss of faith is right there, isn't it? They don't know it, but they're declaring it. She crumpled the letter up and started again in a more jubilant manner. The days of the blackmail are over. The sound of the cuckoo is heard in the land. She had never realized how much it weighed on her, she wrote, but now she could see it. Not the money, as he well knew. She didn't care about the money in any way. It had become a smaller amount in real terms as the years passed, though Sadie had never seemed to realize that. It was the queasy feeling, the never-quite-safeness of it, the burden on their long love that had made her unhappy. She'd had that feeling every time she passed a postbox. 
She wondered if by any chance he would hear the news before her letter could get it to him. Not possible. He hadn't reached the stage of checking obituaries yet. It was in February and again in August of every year that she put the special bills in the envelope, and he slipped the envelope into his pocket. Later, he would probably check the bills and type Sadie's name on the envelope before delivering it to her box. The question was, had he looked in the box to see if this summer's money had been picked up? Sadie had been alive when Corey made the transfer, but surely not able to get to the mailbox. Surely not able. It was shortly before Howard left for the cottage that Corey had last seen him and that the transfer of the envelope had taken place. She tried to figure out exactly when it was, whether he would have had time to check the box again after delivering the money, or whether he would have gone straight to the cottage. Sometimes, while at the cottage, in the past, he'd found time to write Corey a letter, but not this time. She goes to bed with the letter to him still unfinished, and wakes up early when the sky is brightening, though the sun is not yet up. There's always one morning when you realize that the birds have all gone. She knows something. She has found it in her sleep. There is no news to give him. No news because there never was any. No news about Sadie because Sadie doesn't matter, and she never did. No post office box because the money goes straight into an account or maybe just into a wallet. General expenses. Or a modest nest egg. A trip to Spain. Who cares? People with families, summer cottages, children to educate, bills to pay. They don't have to think about how to spend such an amount of money. It can't even be called a windfall. No need to explain it. She gets up and quickly dresses and walks through every room in the house, introducing the walls and the furniture to this new idea. A cavity everywhere, most notably in her chest. She makes coffee and doesn't drink it. She ends up in her bedroom once more and finds that the introduction to the current reality has to be done all over again. But then there is a surprise. She is capable, still, of shaping up another possibility. If he doesn't know that Sadie is dead, he will just expect things to go on as usual. And how would he know unless he is told? And who would he be told by unless by Corey herself? She could say something that would destroy them, but she does not have to. What a time it has taken her to figure this out. And after all, if what they had, what they have, demands payment, she is the one who can afford to pay. When she goes down to the kitchen again, she goes gingerly, making everything fit into its proper place. That was Margaret Atwood reading Cory by Alice Monroe. The story was published in The New Yorker in October of 2010 and was included in Monroe's collection, Dear Life, in 2012. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. 
Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. The questions around retirement have gotten tiring. Instead of, have you saved up enough? Shouldn't they be asking, what is it that you love to do? And how can we help you keep doing it? The truth is, you're not slowing down. So your retirement plan should be more of an action plan, a hiking plan, a music plan, a sailing plan. The point is, whatever you're passionate about, we can help make sure you never stop. At Lincoln Financial, we have the products to help protect and grow your financial future so you can keep doing more of what you love. Make your pastimes last a lifetime at lincolnfinancial.com slash action plan. Lincoln Financial Group, marketing name for Lincoln National Corporation and its insurance companies and broker slash dealer affiliate Lincoln Financial Distributors, Inc., copyright 2024, Lincoln National Corporation. So, Margaret, I'm interested in the way the story begins um, with this idea of Corey's father like hiring Howard to restore the Anglican church, even though he's a Methodist and seems to feel nothing but contempt for the Irish Protestants who go to the Anglican church. Do you think Alice is trying to, is she just scene setting or is she trying to tell us something at that point? Well, she knew everything about those kinds of um, divisions and snobberies in small towns. And uh, she was from the Irish, the despised Irish Protestants. <laughs> Part of her family was. So I think she's having her own little joke. But also that's that's how it went. So my mother was from a very rural part of Little Village in Nova Scotia, and that's how things were arranged. It, it, it was the Baptists, the, the Methodists, the... Uh, I don't think there even were many Anglicans around there. Yeah. And then they were thought to have various characteristics. So among the Methodists and Baptists, you did not drink. And they, they weren't that keen on dancing either. Right. And then later in the story, we get this Church of the Lord's Anointed. Yeah. Not something I'd ever heard of. Well, I think she made it up. She, <laughs> she, she quite, I mean, I spent a long time at one point when I was doing the piece on Lives of Girls and Women. There's a chapter in it in which the high school puts on a musical, and the, there's this list of musicals that they put on, that uh, one of them every year, and... and and I looked, I tried to look them up, and they didn't exist. <laughs> so I said to Alice, did you make those up? And she said, yes. <laughs> but they sound so real. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so it could easily be the Church of the Lord's Anointed. There, it sounds like something that might be there, but it probably isn't. Yeah. Well, the other thing that happens at that first dinner and that first scene is that Mr. Carlton basically announces that 
you know, first, Kari has all the money in the town, and, and second, she's unmarriable because there's there's no one on her level. It's almost as though he's making a suggestion, you know? <laughs> well, I think he probably, yeah, sure, and he found out very quickly that this guy was out of the running because um, uh, he already had a wife and kids. But I don't think that he's suggesting that they should have an affair. Yeah, that he's... And certainly he, not consciously. He would not be thinking that. He's a Methodist. Yeah. Come on. Yeah. It puts the idea in Kari's mind, maybe. Um, I'm not even sure about that. Hmm. I, th- I think it's one of those things that she, she certainly flirts with him in a way, but it can't even be called flirting. You know, these postcards that she sends from Egypt, they're just silly jokes. Well, it's interesting, though, because, you know, they have this dinner. Howard thinks she's unmannerly or potentially tiresome. And Kari, who, you know, would normally be the pursued one, is the one who reaches out, who looks up his address, sends him these sort of coy postcards, even yeah, though, but, you but know... He, but he follows up on it. Yeah. It's almost as though she's challenging him. Seeing well, if he's game. I don't know how old you are, Deborah, but that's how things used to go on. <laughs> so it's the hanky drop, you know. <laughs> she drops the hanky, but it's up to him to pick it up, which he does. Yeah. It feels as though she's testing out whether he can play. Yeah, that's right. Whether he can play. And she drops the hanky. Are you up for the hanky, buddy? Yeah. Uh, so if you're not up for the hanky, you let it lie. And if you are up for it, you pick it up and return it, which is what he does, basically. Why do you think he's up for it? She's not his type. We don't know what his type is. <laughs> yeah, but he thinks she's tiresome and she's too forward. At, at and... the beginning, he thinks that. Yeah. Uh, but then, I think then he discovers the limp. Right. Maiden, rescuer. Um, so it, it opens up another, another whole area and it probably explains a lot of things. Like why she is the way she is, and you'll notice that as soon as they get into bed, it's the foot that intrigues him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, that he's is drawn just plain old. That that is slightly weird. Yeah, yeah, he's titillated by it. Well, he, also it's a you know wounded maiden. Yeah, and she's impractical. She can't light a fire. She can't drive a car. She can't how cook. How appealing? Yes, exactly. <laughs> and presumably he has a whole lot of practicality in in Mrs. Ritchie. Yeah, well, we don't actually ever know how sincere he has been. Mm-hmm. He says he doesn't. He couldn't stand it if it was the end of the two of them. Uh, but is is that real? Yeah. And she will never know, and neither will we. But she'll settle for the illusion if an, if it is an illusion. Yeah, there's that moment, kind of late in the affair, when when Corey sort of fills with tears. At how lucky they are. It's been a great love for her in a way. It has been. And she doesn't want to let, let it go. In fact, it's been her only love. Yeah, we never hear about anyone else. There isn't anyone else. Why do you think oh, she never... Oh, except the piano teacher. Right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's a sad episode. Um, why does she never ask him to leave his wife? She knows he'll say no. Right, so she's not, she's not going to push... No. No, once you've once you've asked that question and got the answer no, that changes everything. Yeah. I'm intrigued by Alice's name choices here. I mean, there's something 
I, I looked back at our original proofs from editing the story, and at first she, Sadie was Sadie Fox. Okay. And then I think we discussed the, the fact that there's the fox collar, which is important, yep. and felt she should change the name. So she changed it to Wolf, you know, another yep. sort of sly, Pre- wild animal that might Pre- you know, <laughs> yeah, attack fox, you in the night. Yeah, foxes are slyer. Foxes are slyer and wolves are more dangerous. Yes, and Sadie, what does that conjure up to you? Well, interestingly, in the book, Dear Life, when she published the story, she changed Sadie to Lillian. That's interesting. Now, I wonder why. Well, I, I was trying to figure it out. There, There is another story, one of the autobiographical ones, which has a maid called Sadie, uh-huh. who also dies, and Alice, as a young girl, is taken to her funeral. So perhaps that real person was resonating in her mind when she when she wrote this, because that Sadie was also sort of outgoing and but I think it's also uh, the name of the protagonist in a very famous Somerset mom story. Sadie's are always a little dangerous. A bit, yeah. Lillian's not so much. <laughs> not so much. <laughs> but what about Corey's? Corey, I don't know. Corey, Corey means maiden. I'm not sure how much it brings. But on the other hand, you have Howard Ritchie, and he is not rich. <laughs> no, he's not. Corey, now I don't know whether Alice knew this or not, but it's, it is a pretty well-known folk ballad called Wake Up, Wake Up, Darlin' Corey. Mm-hmm. Oh, you think she was saying Corey needs to wake up to what's happening? I don't know. I don't know. Last time I saw Darlin' Corey, she was sitting on the something or other with a forty-five strapped around her waist. <laughs> 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 oh, and a, and a deformed foot. And there's this this fox collar, and it, that's a detail. Talking about the way Alice works with details, that's a detail that plays so many different roles in the story. One of them, I think, is is maybe Alice's wink to herself because her father raised uh, silver foxes. He did. Yeah. Um, yeah. She would watch those foxes be skinned and the the furs sent off. The way it works in the story is the wife likes to wear it, but she also likes to disown it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, she's a she's a. I, I didn't buy this far you left know, I, way. I, yeah, I she's embarrassed it, by it. I didn't buy it, <laughs> sort of. But she also <laughs> likes to show it off. So uh, it's just another one of those uh, noticing details. Yeah, and then you you have this idea of of Sadie Wolf sort of preying on this fox. Um, that too, yeah. And at the same time, it's the big giveaway because Kari right away says there's no how Sadie wouldn't know a. a fox collar yeah. from a hole in the ground. Yeah, how did she know that? Um, but but since, yeah, exactly. So it's our one big clue along the way, and then it, it goes away. But all is not as it seemed. Yeah, yeah. What do you think about the museum Kari tries to set up? Why, um, why would she do that? Something to do. Yeah. Small town areas are sprinkled with them. Mm-hmm. So I've been to various ones myself, some of them in, in the United States, some of them in Canada. Um, it is a thing that people do. Uh, I went to one in the South once that was a museum of um, crown jars <laughs> and girdles like corsets and uh, taxidermied squirrels. <laughs> <laughs> 
quite an assortment. <laughs> yeah. 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 These mm-hmm. these towns that were so interesting to Alice, um, things that are sort of falling apart and um, reinventing themselves. Except it hasn't gone that far with this one. We haven't yet got the souvenir shops and the uh, summer festival. Yeah, uh, it's falling. It's falling apart so much that Sadie's family wouldn't even come to shop there anymore by by the end of the story. No, it's it's uh, very. Uh, and that that did happen. I think there was a period in the uh, 60s, 70s before those kinds of old small towns got it into their heads that now they were quaint um, when things just were hollowing out. A town like Stratford that Alice knew very well had reinvented itself by putting a, a Shakespeare festival in there, but before that it was falling apart because it used to be a train-switching station uh, town, and then that all kind of went. Right. And this was a factory town, and the factory closed. Yeah, and there are a number of towns like that in, in that area that, that used to make things, and you, you find them a lot in her work. So when, in one, they're making pianos, and and then those local industries just get gobbled up. Yeah. Closed down. And it's almost, you know, Corey, with her family leadership of the town gone, the factory yeah, closed. She's she's kind of hollowing out as well. And there there never was a social scene there for her because there weren't any other families of that uh, ilk. Right. It's sort of fascinating at the funeral that all these people know her name. She doesn't know any of them or recognize any of no, them. No, no, no. They're uh, townspeople, and she was the lady of the manor. And, right. Uh, but they're familiar with her. I mean, familiar not just in that they recognize, but they speak to her familiarly. Yeah, they they know what she's been up to, and uh, <laughs> or except for that, yeah, it's it's that old truism that the servants always know a lot more about upstairs than than upstairs knows about downstairs. Right, and in this case, it seems Sadie was quite a saintly, lovely person. <laughs> so we are told. <laughs> so it couldn't have been her unless she was a. Dr. Jekyll and Mrs. Hyde. Yeah, yeah. But we, we do think the dinner happened. We know the dinner Absolutely happened. Absolutely, the dinner happened. And um, we know the recognition happened, but nothing came we, of it. We think, but but our only witness is him. Yeah. So I think it did happen, and that gave him the idea. Yeah. Else handles that scene so well, because yeah, we don't yeah. question it. We don't question it, and yet there are these clues there. About the fox collar. Yeah. Exactly. And his sort of downcast look when he says, oh, I've just remembered it has to be bills. <laughs> you know, right. no checks. <laughs> right, no checks, no no paper trail. <laughs> Clever Alice. Uh, <laughs> yes. Well, then when she, then she has to close the museum down and she starts to sort of play at being librarian well, think of, she's living in the house, there's nobody around. What's she going to do all day? She's bored. Yeah, yeah. and you, you get out of the house. Yeah, yeah. But volunteer organizations run on that. Yeah. So, so yes, you can see it as a contribution, but also it's, I have this extra time, what shall I do with it? Yeah, it's a sort of funny to think of her, you know, who's who's very wealthy, Calling people you, up and nagging them to return a book they I, took out I know, and, years and ago. Probably, 
Probably her wealthiness has decreased. So she probably right. has a trust fund or something. She's got enough to keep the house. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she doesn't have a lot of help anymore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's where Jimmy Cousins comes up. And he he's one of those details where you think, well, did she really need the guy making a racket, mowing the lawn? And and then you realize she needed him to tell her about Sadie. You know, well, that, someone, that's, someone that has is to know. The function, uh, that's his function in the story. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody has to tell her. Somebody has to tell her who isn't. Uh, I mean, who else would it be? Yeah. Do you think it's significant that she's reading The Great Gatsby at the time? I've I've given some thought to that. <laughs> <laughs> People lie a lot in, in that book. And it's also a book about how money operates, the privileges of being rich. Right, and about wanting to be. But also just being, so... Um, the people who are really rich are able to just skate over the, these various tragedies. Yeah. But that isn't exactly how it works with with Sadie. And How Howard isn't a Gatsby. He doesn't have a closet full of colorful shirts. Yeah. It, it's interesting. What do you what do you walk away from the story thinking about Howard? Hmm. What do I think about Howard? I don't think he doesn't love her. He loves her in some way, but he also loves his wife and family. He's really got sort of the the dream set up, uh, which is very French. I mean, the old and in, in the olden days, I don't know what it's like today, but in the olden days, you had the wife and then you had the mistress. Right. So you actually had a double life. And sometimes you kind of killed yourself trying to keep them both happy, but that doesn't it, seem to be what Howard's doing. No, it doesn't <laughs> seem to be his, his concern. And, and the, he he at first thinks she's quite conventional, uh, and as it turns out, he himself has always been quite conventional, and she has known that about yeah. him. And conservative. Yeah. So in, so she in opposition to his wife. In opposition to his wife, exactly. Yeah. And and strangely, you know, in the beginning he hates her her gloomy old house and then at the end he's the one who loves it. That's very true. But she's the one who has to explain to the house that things have changed. Yeah. But but then again maybe not. Do you think if it weren't for the money the affair would have kept going anyway? No. Uh, if 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 she hadn't had money, I I don't think um I don't think the giving of money to him would necessarily be the thing, but but if he'd had to support her in any way, it wouldn't have happened. Yeah. Because he couldn't have afforded it. But is it possible that the perhaps the, the titillation of lying to her, of blackmailing, is part of what he gets out of it, or what keeps it exciting? It's possible. I haven't paid very much attention to him. I'm more interested in her. <laughs> For her, she expresses it as a as a great burden that weighs on her through the whole thing. Yeah. So so wounded maiden. So the more uh, apprehensive she is, probably the more interesting it is for him. Yeah. Well, one of the most interesting things about the story is that um, Alice changed the ending. 
Yes, and tell me about that because I wasn't aware of it. Yeah, between this version, which came out in 2010 in The New Yorker, and I went back and looked at her original manuscript. And this yeah, was, and I read it in the magazines, and that's yeah. the one I remember. Yeah, this was pretty much how she had it. Um, I think she actually changed it twice because it appeared in the Penn O'Henry Award Anthology. And there was a sort of in-between version, which is similar to this one, but at a certain point she sort of thinks, oh, you know, forget him, forget about it, and is angry. And then in the final version in Dear Life, the last paragraph is completely different. I can just read it to you. Yes. The briefest note, the letter tossed. Lillian is dead, buried yesterday. She sends it to his office. It does not matter. Special delivery, who cares? She turns off the phone so as not to suffer waiting. The silence. She may simply never hear again. But soon a letter, hardly more to it than there was to hers. All well now. Be glad. Soon. So that's the way they're going to leave it. Too late to do another thing. When there could have been worse. Much worse. So, well, that's kind of nice. He loves her after all. Or he's never going to be in touch again. <laughs> I don't think so. And he's brushed her off. Soon. Or, yeah, or perhaps he's relieved of the burden of having to keep this up. Very possibly. It's, but it's ambiguous to me. It's not, it's not entirely clear. So, it, it, no, it is ambiguous, and, it, and uh, it's very possible that he thinks she still doesn't know. But he's going, to, he's going to carry on with the relationship, even though there won't be any more money. Yeah. But perhaps with a little less regularity or interest. We don't know. Yeah. You know, it may have transitioned over into, oh, she's just a permanent part of his life. I don't think he's a complete cad. We we haven't been told anything that would indicate that. Yeah. But does that ending leave you feeling differently about Kari, about the story? She, it makes her a bit more assertive and a bit more of a gambler. Mm-hmm. So now she's going to put it to the test. Yeah. And And find out what can be counted on, wouldn't you say? Yeah. And she gets an answer. She does get an answer. It's not total honesty. It's not total honesty yet. (laughs) (laughs) That may come later. (laughs) Yeah, so how long is she going to be able to keep it up? Yeah. Why do you think Alice went back to this ending? I mean, she she sometimes did that. Yeah, she sometimes did. I think she changed the ending of Menacetian as well, Mm -hmm. somewhat. Um, Because she she liked rethinking things. And uh, wondering whether she had got it right the first time. So if you go to a book called Eleven Canadian Novelists, which was put together by Graham Gibson and myself, uh, I was the editor, and it was quite a funny job, Deborah, because it, these were recorded tapes, and and they were given to a typist who, as we shortly discovered, was, was somewhat deaf. And there, were a <laughs> lot of, there were a lot of very strange typos, which I just kind of had to figure out what maybe the person had meant. Um, but it's, it's, I think, the first long interview with Alice before, before we all got cagey about interviews. And it's, it's very honest. And uh, she said in it that she thought, she didn't think she got the end of lives and, of girls and women right. She thought it was a failure. 
I don't think that at all. I think it's brilliant, but but that's what she was saying in about 1973 or whenever it was. Well, she might have changed her mind later. I don't know. She she uh, she didn't go back and change the ending, but I I think it works tremendously yeah. well. Well, one thing it it shows me about Alice is is how much her characters stay alive for her even you know she's not she's never quite done with them uh, well they they uh, cause second thoughts yeah and in this case I think she maybe she just wanted to see what would happen if Kari sent the letter yeah or maybe she just wasn't satisfied with the first ending and thought there had to be a bit more mm-hmm. do you prefer one of the two okay I think I kind of like the first one <laughs> that, that's the one I'm used to yeah, yeah. Her just settling into silence and accepting it. Well, it would take considerable willpower. Yeah, I saw someone writing about the story and saying that the, the, the reason she's able to keep going despite this new understanding is that she's not sentimental, and I don't think that's it at all. It's, you know, that moment no, I, of I think she filling with her, tears. She's full of sentiment. She, yeah, she wants her life the way it is. Yeah. She wants to keep this person in it. They've had a really good time. Yeah. And within limits, you know, it's a very modest good time, but it's a good time, and much more than she would have had otherwise. Yeah. I, I, I like it that she sticks up for herself in one version and doesn't in the other. You know, they're both... Or in the other, she's sticking up for what she wants, too. I don't know. It's really interesting. Yeah, well, in the in the first one, it's not that... Uh, we do have We do have the... The idea now that you that you ought to have a fight, but that doesn't necessarily get you what you want. Yeah, and it certainly would not have got her what she wanted. He would have been out of there. Yeah, I mean, there's that moment in the very initial scene of 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 blackmail where it's touch and go. Could be over. Yes, it is. Could be over. But the other thing is, once she knows. Uh, he would be terrified of her because she she would be the one who might be quite capable of revealing all to the wife. Mm-hmm. No, she wouldn't. I don't think. You don't think. think she... Yeah, but if she were angry enough, she might. Yeah. I think she's not that type. Apparently not. <laughs> <laughs> it's not in the story. <laughs> See, Kari goes on living for me, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, what would you have done, Deborah? If I were Cory or if I were yeah, Alice? If you, if, you were, if you were Cory. <laughs> oh, I wouldn't have been able to live with it. But as you said, I, I wasn't around in Cory's time. Oh, uh, I don't know what I would have done. Yeah. That, that's why it's a good story. It puts it, <laughs> it puts it to the reader. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you so much, Margaret. And, and thank you. Alice Monroe is the author of more than a dozen short story collections, including Dear Life, The View from Castle Rock, and The Love of a Good Woman. Among other awards, she's won the Penn Malamud Award, the Giller Prize, the Man Booker International Prize, the Ray Award for the Short Story, and the Nobel Prize in Literature. She's been publishing stories in The New Yorker since 1977. Margaret Atwood is the author of numerous collections of poetry, stories, and novels, including The Handmaid's Tale, The Blind Assassin, which won the Booker Prize in 2000, and Stone Mattress. A winner of the Franz Kafka Prize and the Governor General's Award, among others, she'll publish The Testaments, a sequel to The Handmaid's Tale, in September. 
You can download more than 140 previous episodes of the New Yorker Fiction Podcast, or subscribe to the podcast for free in the Apple Podcast section of the iTunes Store. On the Writer's Voice Podcast, you can hear short stories from the magazine read by their authors. You can find the Writer's Voice and other New Yorker podcasts on your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this program on our Facebook page, or rate and review us in Apple Podcasts on iTunes. The New Yorker Fiction Podcast is produced by Jill Duboff. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.